Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest is a leader internationally in the field. I'm so honored to have him on. I actually met Dr. Robert Niemeyer many, many years ago, right after 9-11, and he probably doesn't even remember. I mean, he knows the story because I've talked to him about it before. He was teaching a a seminar on grief and loss um, at the New School right after 9-11. And at that time, I just started working with firefighter families who were trying to cope with the death of a firefighter in the World Trade Center. And he is an amazing person in the field and has had a profound influence on the work that I've been doing. So with that, let me introduce him to you. Um, Our guest, as I said, is Dr. Robert Niemeyer, and he's going to talk today about new theories of grief. Dr. Robert Niemeyer is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Memphis, where he also maintains a private clinical practice. Dr. Niemeyer is a lecturer, clinician, and researcher on the topics of death, grief, loss, and suicide intervention. He has published 21 books, is the editor of two respected international journals, and is on the board of the Open to Hope Foundation, as well as a past president of the Association for Death Education and Counseling. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you very much, Heidi and Gloria. I appreciate uh, having the opportunity once more to talk to you guys about something that matters to us all. Yeah, it's great to have you on. You said we were busy. How did you ever get to publish 21 books? Uh, and, and, and I think it's like 300 articles, isn't it, Bob? Yeah, that's a, a free time activity when I'm not seeing clients and supervising students and doing the other things that uh, make up a rich and full life. Wow. Well, sleep's overrated. <laughs> well, Bob, we were going to talk today about the new theories of grief. What are the old theories? Well, I think the old theories of grief seduce us with the idea that we all grieve in the same way, that we move in kind of a lockstep fashion through a a series of predictable stages that maybe begin with a sense of denial and move through various phases of anger and protest and depression and ultimately emerge in a kind of recovery or acceptance. But what we learn in our hearts and in our lives and in our own losses is mirrored by what we learn in in recent psychological research and the experience of loss, and that is that it ain't that easy. We grieve very differently one from another there is often no predictability to the, the course that will follow. And despite the, the universal stressors of bereavement, the universality of loss, the way it touches all of our lives, usually many times across the course of our living, we respond in quite individual ways to that. Yeah, well, and also, you know, what gets us in trouble with this old theory, too, is that we kind of get out of our business. We start minding other people's business, too. I notice, uh, you know, I would maybe say, and I probably said it back then, my husband's not grieving right. You yeah. know, he's supposed to be doing this or that. Or or he might say, my wife's grieving too much. She's not moving on. Yeah. Well, we, we sometimes hold our theories in this way, don't we, where we use them not as a, a descriptive resource, but as a prescriptive resource. In other words, we can prescribe how others feel and how we ourselves should be grieving and aren't. And this is a kind of self and other evaluation that is unhelpful when we're in the throes of loss. 
Right. Heidi, were you going to say something about Oh, that? I was just going to say what you guys were saying to add on. We not only judge other people, we judge ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we think, wait a minute, why are we, you know, in denial again? Or why are we going backwards? And why are we in a, you know, regressive place? We should be going forwards. What, what happened? So there's judgment of others as well as ourselves when we adhere to, like, these rigid stages. Yeah, and you know, Bob, I don't know where it fits in, but I will tell you, last night when I was at that Compassionate Friends uh, candle lighting, I mean, people are really, in those early stages, they are really seriously suffering. Yes. Indeed, I myself this evening was, uh, I'm carried forward to what I'll be doing this evening by what you were doing last evening, and that is I'll be going to a candle lighting vigil as well for a group called Victims to Victory, which is a mutual support group for survivors of homicide mm. in the family and social network. And very many of these are parents whose children ha- are victims of homicide who have been murdered. And that will be a, a, a sacred but a sorrowful place as we join together tonight to, to recognize this mutual tragedy. Right. You're going to uh, a vigil tonight. Uh, tell us the name of the group again. The group is called Victims to Victory, and it's a faith-based mutual support group that tries to accompany the survivors of this, this heinous crime as they negotiate the court system and, of course, also try to find a way to maintain a bond to the best in that life that they had loved and lost um, in the context of a very traumatizing bereavement. I, I love the idea of victims to victory, don't you, Heidi? Oh, yeah, it's so empowering. And, you know, often when you have a homicide you feel so powerless. So it really is an empowering name for people. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, Bob, um, I, I just wanted to mention quickly to our audience, just so they'll know that Bob just isn't this academic, head-based person hanging out there, are you, Bob? <laughs> uh, as seldom as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Bob uh, had some early trauma in his own life. Your father uh, died by suicide, right? Yes, he did. He took his life in a period of great darkness, uh, both psychological and physical. He was losing his eyesight by degrees and with it his ability to run the family pharmacy that had maintained our home uh, up to that time. And he ended his life on one cold January morning about 10 days before my 12th birthday. Mm. And I was the oldest of three kids in the family. And Of course, that pretty clearly shut the, uh, the book on, uh, on our childhood and launched us into a very, very different kind of adolescence. Yeah, incredible. Incredible, and I know a lot of our audience can identify with the, the kind of pain that you'd go through at that age. Well, let's talk a little bit about what the new theories of grief are, because I, I think of grief as kind of like a dance, uh, uh, and you were talking about it being a dual process. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I like that idea of a dance uh, and in fact, it, it is interesting that C.S. Lewis, who is a, an, was an amateur Christian theologian who wrote a good deal about his own loss experience in a, in a book the readers may recognize called A Grief Observed, talked about how for every pair of lovers without exception, bereavement is a natural part of the dance of life, that it's not a break in the dance, it's the next step in the dance. And when we recognize, when we take on board this hard knowledge that ultimately every person, every place, every project, every possession we love, we will lose, at least in an earthly sense, then it really marinates us in the hard reality that 
loss is not optional. It's you know it's one of the core courses in the curriculum of living, and, and how we learn its lesson shapes who we become. Oh, I like that, Heidi. Don't you? How we learn its lesson shapes how we become. Absolutely. Yeah, it's important to be grateful for things in life, but it's it's also important not to be too attached, because like Bob said, we are if we're around long enough, we're going to lose everything in our lives at some point. And and also, you know, not only are we going to lose things in life, and I found that this out later on in my life. I mean, when my brother and my cousin died together, it was all about deprivation and loss and our family shrinking. But now, since I've since it's been over twenty years, I've started. To, people have come into the family. And I've I've gotten to know people, and the, the family's expanded again. Also, mm. you know, I think that also reflects this kind of dual process model that is one of the new theories of grief that Gloria had mentioned, and that's basically the notion that in the context of our everyday life experience as bereaved people, we ourselves engage in a kind of dance, sometimes an unwilling dance, between what is called the loss orientation on one side and the restoration orientation on the other, meaning that we shift back and forth between grief work, where we turn inward to ourselves, we may turn toward God, we may turn toward other trusted confidants, as we focus on our grief, on our sense of loss and desolation, as we seek answers to the questions that percolate up in our bereavement of why this happened to us or to our loved one. And in all of this this internal loss orientation, we necessarily push away from and deny the changes the world is requiring of us. At other times, we make a different step. We step toward the restoration orientation. And in that frame, in that sphere, we engage in new things. We try on new roles and goals. We look not only at the deprivation, as you mentioned, Heidi, but also at the possibilities for growth, for enlargement of our life as we begin to embrace change. And at those times, we necessarily deny and push away from our grief, at least momentarily, in order to engage the world in a new way. That's an interesting thought because, uh, you know, it, it's so interesting. Last night I said to somebody, um, ask them how their son died, and she said, I don't want to talk about that right now. And, uh, you know, I just thought about how intense that pushing and pulling is early on. Yeah. And as a, just a, a counterexample to that, uh, a few hours ago I was in my clinical practice, and I was talking with a young woman, 20 years of age, who is now uh, on, in early January. She will be approaching the anniversary of the death of her partner, her boyfriend, uh, in a car accident in which she was driving. And as she spoke about the loss, uh, she was able to refer to him uh, by name and refer to his death uh, in just those direct terms as part of a larger life story, as part of a larger learning on her part, a larger maturing experience that is shaping who she becomes as a young woman. And I had the sense that she, in contrast to the person that you describe, was quite willing and increasingly able to speak about the loss as something that is integrated into her life story. It can mm-hmm. be mentioned by name. Uh, it's not something that is warded off and avoided. And, and that might be, how far out is she from well, the loss? just under one year. 
Yeah, even that. This woman, I think, was like five days. Yes. Oh, so, yes. so that kind of movement. That's one of the wonderful things about group seeing groups is yeah. that you see people at different uh, stages and different levels, and, and you see how it goes back and forth. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you can really get back into a, a difficult place. And, and indeed, with the, the dual process model that we're talking about, these two processes entail moving back and forth between loss and restoration, loss and restoration, perhaps several times during a given day, and certainly across, uh, across days in a week and beyond. I like that because, you know, people feel like they're crazy, don't they, Heidi? We hear that. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm going crazy. And I think it's that, that probably movement early on that makes them feel kind of crazy. I look at it as a hopeful movement in the sense that the, I think one of the, the prime movements of grieving is coming to have choice where there was none. None of us choose to lose those we love. And yet we do have some choices about how we engage that loss. We can make time to grieve. We can create safe spaces, be it in therapy, be it in a support group, be it in an interaction on a web blog, um, be it in prayer. There may be many contemplative and conversational moments in which we can allow loss, make time for it, even as strange as it seems, schedule time in a busy life for the grieving. I, well, I think that, Heidi, one of your big things uh, with... Yeah, one of your big things with the 9-11 families is scheduling time for fun, too, right? Absolutely. And, you know, you both know, when, when we've had someone we've lost, we feel so guilty about taking time away from our grief. And so it's, you know, these families feel like they have permission to have fun because one of the homework assignments is family fun time every week mm-hmm. where they have to take a break from their grief. And they feel that since it's been assigned, they don't feel as guilty about doing that. So it's yeah, Bob. I wanted to ask you uh, for our audience out there. It's the holidays, Christmas time. Have you got any suggestions for the folks? Well, I think almost anything that gives meaning to our loss helps us with our grief. And so I know people who, in their various holiday traditions and different families, may do so in quite different ways. But they often find some ritual way of including their their loved one in the holiday celebration. It might be as simple as the ornament that I will hang on our Christmas tree when we decorate that this weekend as our sons return from college, an ornament that I hang for my mother and another that my wife will uh, hang for her mother, both of whom are, are no longer with us in a physical sense. Uh, it may be that people during a Hanukkah uh, gift exchange uh, include a gift given from their loved one in honor of him or her toward a loved family member or to someone in need. And I think in these small ritual ways, we can keep our loved ones as members of our lives, as part of the family conversation and ritual, and in this way, honor who they are still for us. I think we're going to go on break now. and when we- Bob, regarding the new theories of grief, I wanted to make sure we covered this. You're talking about the dual process where people go in and out. Are there any other specific new theories you want to talk about? You know, there's another, I think, that is very relevant, especially during this time of remembrance in many uh, different traditions, and that is the two-track model of bereavement, uh, which says that we move ahead in our grieving as a train might move ahead on two rails, that we are simultaneously uh, making progress on two fronts. 
And one of these is uh, the track having to do with our biopsychosocial functioning. And what that means is all of the symptoms that we struggle with in our grieving of anxiety, depression, um, we might have bodily concerns uh, as the stress of bereavement takes its toll at a physical level. We find struggle sometimes, conflicts in our relations with others. We look for a new basis for self-worth uh, in the, the absence of this loving relationship. We might have disruptions in our work lives. But the second track through bereavement is the one that really intrigues me, and that has to do with our relationship to the deceased, not only in life, but also in death how we now hold that person in our imagery, in our memory, our feelings in response to that person, how, how preoccupied we might be with the way in which they had died or with aspects of the way in which we had lived together, the way we idealized them after their, their death. All of these ways that we, we somehow maintain and often develop a deeper relationship to them even following their death. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, what what about closure? Aren't I supposed to get closure? Well, that is one of the the myths of 20th century grief theory, I think. Uh, sometimes we take the idea of closure to mean that we close the book on, on the relationship and we're able to move on as if uh, that person had not been part of our life. But in our heart of hearts, we know that to be false. And we find it to be false as well in uh, our own psychological research as well as in our practice where people are much more motivated to maintain continuing bonds than they are to close the book on a relationship. And you know, Bob, I'm always quoting you. I love when you said, closure is for bank accounts, not love accounts. Yes, absolutely. It's a kind of crazy capitalist idea of grief that we are to withdraw emotional energy from the one who had died in order to invest it in another relationship as if love were like money and was available only in limited supply. And what we find is that the more deeply we are able to continue our love affair with our deceased uh, loved one, the more amply we are able to love others because we don't simply amputate or cut off feeling in that selective way. Wow, that's a wonderful thought. I like this idea of uh, the two-track because one thing that people do sometimes ignore is that there is a physical a physical response to this whole thing. And oh, yes. it, and early on, I think that's one of the driving powerful things is just the shock of, you know, to the body. It's it's a physical assault to the system, I think, in many ways. Like you said, I mean, it takes its toll in so many ways. I remember my forehead being bruised on the outside because I was grieving so hard. On the inside. Right. You yeah. could actually see it on the outside because of what was going on internally. It is, it, is, it is a biopsychosocial model. It really is. Yeah, we experience disruptions in our sleep cycle. We develop a sense of fatigue, of just inability to, uh, to capture the energy that we require to move through life. We know, too, from studies of bereavement that especially when our grief is unremitting, especially when we cannot give ourselves permission to have that kind of family fun day, to move into the restoration orientation, to reinvest in life, especially when grief is complicated and prolonged, then we find that people are at much higher risk of, of serious physical difficulties, including heart problems, including a greater risk of various infectious diseases, including 
a risk of suicide or substance abuse. So we do need to take seriously the, the risk factors of prolonged and intense grief. But we now, what if I've been listening to this show now and I say to myself, okay, Bob, I'm ready to change. I'm, re- I'm ready to make a move. I'm ready to move towards restoration. What's your suggestion during this holiday season? Well, one thing would be to, again, give yourself permission to shift for yourself, um, to hold the grief as something that is near you instead of surrounding you. I had a, a client a few weeks ago, a bereaved mother in her 50s, whose uh, daughter in her early 30s died of a brain aneurysm very suddenly. And two years following this, as she was working through some of these issues in therapy with me, she said, you know, Bob, I'm starting to feel that my grief is like a big rubber exercise ball, like they use in Pilates. And I'm holding it out from me now. And she held her hands out in front of her as she said this, as if she's holding this great, huge ball. And she said, it's still close to me. I can see that grief easily, but it's no longer surrounding me like it was before. And I think that there are things that we can do to develop that slight distance from the grief. And one of them was suggested to me by the the comment that Heidi made earlier about the family fun day and arranging even for 9-11 survivors uh, to schedule time to reinvest in life in that way. And I remember working with a family whose young son, David, uh, died, and it was in a tragic car accident. He was about maybe six years old at the time. And for the first year or two, the family was quite numb and just staggered forward. They had other young children. Um, The parents themselves were decimated by this loss. But in their third year, they came up with a plan. They decided that every year on David's birthday, whenever it fell, they would declare David Day as a family. Mm -hmm. And the parents would call in sick to work. They would write notes to the school saying, I'm sorry, our, our child is ill. And the parents and children would all spend the entire day doing something fun together, maybe something that David would have enjoyed, going to the zoo, going to the beach. And, of course, the day would be filled not only by reaffirmed relationships with living family, but by ample opportunities to remember David, to recall all the funny and you know, just heartwarming things that he had said or done in previous visits. And so... I think that's, that's a small but significant way that people can maintain a continuing bond, can reaffirm the relationship to their loved ones, and yet also reinvest in life in the very same stroke. And, and maybe just I'm thinking that it's the holiday now to give yourself a gift of saying it's all right, mm-hmm. it's okay for you to say, you know what, I'm going to start trying to reaffirm, I'm maybe make a list of things that I like to do this holiday, even if it's mm-hmm. just take a bubble bath or take a walk or, or as one our guest said last week, go into nature. Right, Heidi? Do you have any other? I was just thinking about what Bob said. I love that idea of paying tribute to those that we've loved and lost by having like a Scott Day or a David Day and doing just dedicating the whole day to doing things in their honor and memory. I love that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had a, another therapy conversation uh, about a year and a half ago with the mother of a 19-year-old woman who took her life, uh, and so she died by suicide. And the the mother was, of course, lamenting this loss very greatly. It was probably it was probably talking to them seven or eight months following the the death. 
and she was speaking about how she was growing more and more remote from her husband, less available to her other surviving children. Um, was she was a nurse and was functioning less well in that role, and and she ended up acknowledging. She said, "You know, Bob, I feel guilty if I'm not grieving intensely, and you know, I feel like I have to think about." my daughter all the time, right? Or I'm not doing her memory justice. And and I looked at her and I said, I'll call her Linda. And I said, Linda, when when your daughter, Sally, was a baby, did you hold her 24 hours a day or did were there times you put her down? And, oh, well, of course I put her down. I put her down in her bassinet or in her bed or, you know, in her stroller or in her swing. And, and I said, were you any less good a mother to her? doing that and her mouth kind of fell open and she said no no I I was a great mother and and then her husband Mike who was seated next to her said yes she was wonderful and I said what then prevents you from putting Sally down now Mm. from time to time in order to engage other things does that make you any less good a mom to her now and she was able to make a kind of shift to give herself emotional permission not to relate to her daughter in grief 24-7, but to honor her with that grief at some times, while at other times being lovingly available to other people and purposes. And I thought that that signified just the kind of shift that we hope to make, not to lose contact with our loss, but to be able to, in a sense, have increasing choice and control over how we bear that loss forward. I love that idea of being able to put grief down for a little while. I do, too. I love that metaphor. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, Bob, talk a little bit about resilience of people. What's well, your experience well, with that? Yeah, of course, what we know is that uh, grief is not simply some kind of disorder that we suffer. Uh, indeed, we find that even though our losses may uh, weigh on us heavily for a time, the great majority of people, if we track how they do across time and the aftermath of very painful losses, they do quite well. We find that 50% of people may, after a period of a few weeks or a few months, find that they are substantially reinvesting in life, are beginning to again find pleasure and joy in connections with people and projects that matter to them. and. Interestingly, interestingly, we also know that the ability to experience joy, to maybe catch oneself laughing fully, even in the midst of one's bereavement, these signs of positive emotion are better predictors for how we will do in the long run than the depth of the sadness that we feel. Well, that's interesting. So yeah. we want to seek opportunities to really cultivate positive emotions And we may do it in our storytelling regarding our loved ones, uh, in relating familiar family uh, uh, sort of jokes or incidents, um, and perhaps engaging in quite new activities that confront us with novelty and beauty and awe. And, of course, this this season and various faith traditions offers opportunities for that, uh, whatever our, our particular philosophy is. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to take a break now, Mom and Bob. And- well, Bob, we want to talk about your latest book, which is your book of poetry, 
You want to tell people what the name of it is and how they can get it and all that? Well, the book is entitled The Art of Longing, and it was a very interesting project for me because I paired a few dozen of my poems with artwork contributed by several artist colleagues from the U.S. and abroad who work in a variety of media from everything from uh, cut steel sculpture to collage to a good deal of painting and watercolor, acrylics, oils, and in each case we kind of looked for pieces of artwork that resonated with the theme of a poem. So they it, in some way attempt to deepen appreciation of both the visual and the, the verbal um, media represented by the, the artwork and the poems. Now how will people get a hold of this book? Well, just like the world buys everything nowadays, we just go to <laughs> Amazon.com and look for The Art of Longing by Robert A. Niemeyer. Um, people might be interested in the practical book that I have there about grieving, uh, which is also entitled Lessons of Loss, A Guide to Coping, Lessons of Loss. And, and both are, are pretty inexpensive paperbacks. And Bob, can you also give people your website? You've got a fabulous website that's very comprehensive and has a lot of information. I would be happy to do that. I'll look it up as we... Okay, if you let me, spell, let me spell Bob's name for you. N-E-I-M-E-Y-E-R. And I'm sure if you Google Bob, you will find his you'll, website. You'll find him many times over. And I also want to say, if you go to Open to Hope, and he's one of our contribut- contributing authors, you click on his name, uh, there's a link right to his website. Um, one more question I have for you, Bob. If someone oh, and also, Heidi, don't forget YouTube's. Yes, Robert has several, three YouTubes with us, and so you can go in, and to the Open to Hope site and see those as well. And I've also posted those on Facebook. And what if someone wants to see you for private in private practice, Bob? Well, all of my contact information is available on my webpage. And on that site, in fact, you'll see scholarship. People can look up articles and just simply click them and download them and read them at no cost. Also, various books and media are there. And then my private practice information is also provided. And you have to be from Memphis, right? No. I actually work with people by Skype. Uh, oh, good. And I have clients in Toronto and uh, Pittsburgh and uh, New York, in fact. So I don't Fantastic. mean to speak with you directly, Heidi, but uh, the world is filled with plenty of pain, I'm sure, for all of us to... Fabulous. So if you want to see Dr. Robert Niemeyer, if you want to have him in practice, etc., you just need to go to his website and and do that. And you can even see photos of him and et cetera. And he's fabulous. You and come highly recommended. And uh, we're going to have Bob read uh, some poetry when we go out of the show. But before we go out of the show, I just wanted to, you know, we're talking about the new theories of grief when we talked about the two-track, the biopsychosocial and the relationship, I think it's a two-track, and then the dual process where we kind of do the dance back and forth. Did you have any other that you wanted to talk about, Bob? Well, I might mention that something that's of keen interest to me personally is the way in which we seek meaning in the context of our loss. And uh, I think about our lives in a way as life stories, stories that we don't so much or so often write in ink on paper, uh, as in relationships and commitments in the way we build up and live out the story of our lives. And when that life story is shaken, is disrupted, is challenged by the loss of some of the major characters in that story, then in a sense we have to rewrite a new future. We have to rewrite those future chapters of our life that 
we thought were largely sketched out for us. With this person no longer here, the story can't go on as it was. It needs to take a different turn. And so I think there are a variety of narrative techniques, storytelling techniques, that can be healing and can be a part of this kind of healing journey through grieving. Uh, and so in my work with clients, I often encourage them to engage in therapeutic writing that supplements the work that we do in session. And one thing you can do if if you're not a writer, somebody was also talking about that you can actually, you know, use a tape recorder and tape it and listen to it. Oh, absolutely. And we find that especially when the stories are troubling and traumatic, when the loss was sudden and unexpected, then simply having that opportunity, whether you're telling a therapist or a tape recorder or a personal journal the story, to relate it in slow motion detail in a way that will take at least many minutes. Uh, With one client, for example, who lost her son in a violent car accident, we spent two 90-minute sessions simply telling the story from the moment she received that fateful call to the point that she lowered her son's body into the grave. Mm -hmm. And some people never tell those stories, and they hold them, and it becomes a shock when when things remind them. The reminders are really devastating. And I'm also thinking, what about the person that, you know, saw somebody die that they loved and felt like they, and keeps replaying that in their heads and then feels like I should have, could have, would have done, you know, keeps replaying that I should have done something different, even though they really couldn't have stopped the death. They keep replaying it and it's, it's almost like a broken record and they can't get beyond that, that thought and that memory of the trauma. Absolutely. That, that is where, uh, Basically, stories get frozen, and they, they become stuck in time. It's as if we ourselves become stuck in time and can't move forward. And I try to practice a number of techniques for helping people do that. And some simple ones uh, would include the idea of, for example, writing a letter to someone else who had suffered a similar loss. What would you tell that person? What would you tell perhaps another mother who lost her son in such an accident about what her role uh, in now grieving her son would have been, about the kind of mother she was. What would you tell her by way of advice regarding how she might uh, now move forward in the the wake of that loss? And often we find that people are better able to access compassion with reference to another, even an imagined other, than they are in relation to themselves. And as they do so, they can begin to glimpse new possibilities that are relevant to them as well. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. I love that. Did you have another technique that you use with people? Well, one thing I invite uh, people to do is to write about themselves in light of their loss and to do it from the standpoint of someone who knows them intimately and sympathetically maybe better than anyone actually could. Like, how would they describe themselves in light of their loss from the standpoint of their best friend? What would they say about what is now uh, being suffered uh, by them and, and what they might do about that? Often this is an invitation to invite people to decenter from that critical view of themselves. I'm not grieving well enough. I'm not doing the right things. I failed my loved one, the shoulda, coulda, woulda kind of response that you mentioned. And by adopting the, the vantage point of someone else, 
who knows you, maybe better than anyone could, people can often relinquish that self-criticism and find instead a source of self-encouragement. Mm-hmm. And that resilience. Yes. You know, I, the, the old uh, empty chair method is not too bad either, where you have two chairs and you sit in one chair and uh, be the other person and ask them, you know, what they would have done. Yes, I make use of that uh, a good deal. Much of the the unfinished business that regards the death may have to do with the ongoing relationship with the deceased. And by symbolically placing the deceased in an empty chair and speaking from our hearts about our most basic feelings and needs with reference to them, and then as we fall silent, taking that other seat and responding to ourselves as they would can promote a kind of healing conversation going back and forth until a kind of consolation and mutual understanding is reached. Sometimes, though, those techniques can be pretty heavy to do. Right, especially if you're alone. And and this is one reason uh, that that grief therapy and counseling can be uh, useful at times. Yeah, or having a priest or a friend or someone that you can tell your story to. Mm-hmm. Okay, Bob. So we're we're going to end in a in a few minutes, and I know that you had. Do you have any final words for our audience about um, how to how to find hope after loss? Well, I I suppose first to remember that hope is elusive, and that it is not uh, it's not a shortcoming of one's own. If it's difficult to access that hope in the early weeks and months of loss, but that ultimately, if several months after loss. It feels as if you are still spiraling downward. That's a time when reaching out to others makes plenty uh, of sense, whether that's a mutual support group or a professional context. And then ultimately the one goal of grieving is to somehow reaffirm or rebuild a world that is meaningful, that has purpose, that has direction, that has the possibility of joy and connection. And this often entails finding opportunities for choice in a choiceless event. Well, you're certainly an example for the whole world of having a a traumatic experience as a child and coming through to do all this great work that you're doing for others. Would you read your poem that you have from your book for us before we close? I would be happy to. This is a poem I wrote actually for a, a friend of mine who had died by suicide a couple of years ago. And I was invited to give a presentation at a conference in his honor, a, a kind of keynote address at this conference. And the, the evening before, I found myself sitting in my study after my family had gone to bed uh, when these words came to my mind. And so I'll simply describe them in the form of the poem, a poem that I entitled Room. Even the chair defines you by your absence. It lifts its arms to embrace yours, opens its lap to cup your form in its soft shape. Without you, it is an empty hand. On the footstool, the books mill in their randomness, forget their call to common purpose. The pens on your desk have bled dry of words. Your tablet is a tombstone without inscription. This is how we are cast by the long light of your shadow. Persist in our objective irrelevance. Collectively, we have lost the threads of memory, of intention, dropped the beads from time's limp string. The clock's pulse measures the silence like a tin heart. 
registers only hours since, never until. Slowly, we are hollowing ourselves through our grief as rocks are carved by sand in a hard wind. You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.